0: Hey guys, this is your host, Doug Stewart. And if you have been with us since episode one, I want to thank you for hanging in there with us and being a loyal supporter and a loyal listener. We have so many episodes. I mean, we're in the mid to high 300s right now, depending on which episode you're listening to this little pre-roll for. What we're going to do is we're going to actually re-release a few of the episodes that I would consider maybe our greatest hits, ones that Maybe you haven't listened to in a long time because you've been here with us from the beginning, or maybe you haven't actually been here for that long and you haven't had time to go back and re-listen to some of them. So we're going to reissue some of the episodes that were really, really, I'm going to call them old as in like they were recorded a long time ago, but they're not old in terms of relevancy. And so you will hear from me as host. You'll also hear from probably Norman Horn as host. We might even have some other special guest hosts, depending on what the topic is. So To be sure, we will also be releasing new episodes, but we also wanted to return to some of the classics that we've had. So I'll let you get to the show. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking
1: about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, your host, and I have a special guest with us, Eric Schonsberg. Now, I want you to meet Eric Schonsberg for a kind of a personal reason. It happens at uh, a book that we'll talk a little bit about in this episode, uh, is one of the first books that convinced me that being a Christian libertarian was a good choice. But let me introduce him more formally here. He's a professor of economics at Indiana University Southeast in New Albany. He's the author of two books on public policy. One is called Poor Policy, How Government Harms the Poor, and the book that convinced me to be a Christian libertarian, "Turn Neither to the Right Nor to the Left, A Thinking Christian's Guide to Politics and Public Policy. And he's also author of many books on on other topics as well. He's authored more than 150 articles ranging from academic journals to op-eds. Eric, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. So you and I were chatting on Facebook a bit earlier this week, and uh, you actually happened to tell me that there was a book by Elizabeth Warren that you actually liked. And honestly, I would have never thought that would come out of the mouth of somebody who aligns with libertarian principle for thing. And it turned into a project
1: for you. Could you give us a little bit of backstory on that? Sure. Uh, I happened to catch an episode of uh, Ben Shapiro's show, and I don't listen to him much, but I providentially caught this one episode where he was referring to Elizabeth Warren's first public policy book. And he had kind words to say about it, and I found that intriguing, just like you were saying. And so I picked it up, and sure enough, it was pretty good. It was uh, conservative, socially, at least moderate in terms of uh, economic policy policy. And what was most intriguing was not just that she had staked out positions to that end, but actually understood the economics behind it. She understood, for example, why you do not subsidize things and uh, the damage that causes. So she makes these arguments that are really impressive to an economist about why subsidies are uh, distort incentives. They cause results other than what you're really aiming for and so on. So I was really intrigued by that. And I've actually never heard her speak. So, you know, I've seen a few things in the newspaper. I don't really keep up with uh, news on TV and that kind of stuff. I do a lot of reading, but, you know, obviously she was, uh, is a big candidate. And so checked into that. And then I thought, well, let me look at the other two books she's written on public policy. And so that just became this larger project. So what was, what were some of the, um, you know, I
0: will link in the show notes page, uh, the story, which was actually picked up by the USA Today network, which is really cool because this is kind of expanded for you. What were is I mean, just to be clear here, we're talking about the Elizabeth Warren who's running for president and that's kind of part of the story a little bit, right? Because position shifted.
1: Right. Position shifted tremendously and there's just no explanation for it. So she goes from this person who makes, uh, eloquent, explanations economic understanding to completely dropping that so uh, i think that's the first major story is that she's a complete hypocrite i mean if you think about a, a bernie sanders uh or just more broadly when when my students will ask about public policies they'll often wonder well do they not know this stuff or do they know it and they still say it to get elected and the answer usually is well i don't i don't know but in the Elizabeth Warren case, the answer is she knows, but she doesn't care or, or something else has happened that's unexplained. So someone like Bernie Sanders, you listen to him and it's not clear that he does understand uh, markets and that sort of thing. But Warren does understand. So as I talk about in the essay, that's a different sort of evil, right? I mean, you get ignorance that leads you to uh, different problems. uh Uh, But then other people know, and they know better, and yet they still persist in something, and that's where Warren's at. I think the other angle that's really amazing is that uh, she tells a story about her uh, forays into public policy were at first in in bankruptcy law. That's where she cut her teeth in terms of academic research and interest. And uh, she does all this work. She starts getting some... Uh, recognition. She has a New York Times op-ed, and this is all in the late 1990s. And at that time, they had tried to put forward a bankruptcy reform law, and uh, then the interest groups get involved, and the lobbyists for the other side, the bad guys, the industry, and all that. And maybe it's bad bills. I don't know. I, I don't know much about that area. But in her telling of it, you know, the, the industry starts to gain momentum over the good bill, And she has this New York Times op-ed, and uh, Hillary Clinton reaches out to her and says, "Hey, can we meet? I've seen your work. I want to talk some more." And in her account, Hillary's you know amazing. She's smart, sharp, quick study, asks great questions, on and on. And the upshot of the story is that uh, Elizabeth persuades Hillary, Hillary persuades Bill, and uh, Bill had been planning to go along with their Republican Congress to sign this legislation. Well, Hillary persuades Bill to veto it. And so it's a pretty cool story about an interest group getting pushed back by, you know, uh, grassroots activists, kind of inspiring stuff. Well, then you turn the page and Warren then writes, you know, then uh, Hillary became, uh, instead of being first lady, she became the senator from New York as she voted for the bill just six months later. Mm. And so Warren crushes her for... Quite a while, uh, calling her out for, you know, selling out hypocrisy, uh, campaign contributions from banking interests goes on and on. She comes back to it 30 pages later and crushes her again. And it's just a remarkable, uh, story. But then you think, again, this is Elizabeth Warren who herself then does the exact same thing years later. She gets elected and she flips just like Hillary, who she had crushed earlier. So the hypocrisy is really... Uh, two layers deep, right, that she knows better and yet supported the, the various subsidies that she used to condemn for eloquent reasons. And then second, she's already called a prominent politician on the carpet for similar hypocrisy. And now she herself engages in the same stuff. Do we have any indication as to why she, she shifted her views? There's nothing in the books uh, on that uh, I mean, there's little hints if you're reading between the lines. I think you could imagine where maybe the ends justify the means. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can imagine where she just is so frustrated with uh, things like TARP and the, the bailouts. I mean, one of the things that frustrates her is that there's subsidies to banks, but in her mind, reduced subsidies to students right. uh, in education. So you can see some frustration some of which, you know, libertarians can share. I mean, again, you've got this cronyism that's so prevalent and and maybe that just frustrates her and she just throws up her hands and says, ah, forget it, you know, I'm just gonna yeah. do what I can. There's a great article in Reason by Pete Suderman and he, I like the way he sums it up. He says, you know, basically the impression you get from Elizabeth Warren is that it's all a mess unless Elizabeth Warren is the one running the show. And I think that maybe is kind of where we're at is that she really distrust government in the hands of just about everybody else. But, you know, she believes, I, I I guess the deceit or the convenient, uh, you know, line of reasoning that if she were in control, it would all be different somehow, but it is an amazing flip. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I, I actually think that this is one of the biggest reasons
0: I'm a libertarian is because I, I personally recognize that that's a faulty view that if I were in charge, the world would run pretty well or if I were president or if I were, you know, if I had my way about the world, it would run pretty well, you know, cause I, there are certain outcomes that I'd like to see and so forth. And I kind of like, I, mean, I think to some extent everyone kind of has that view, you know, because otherwise we wouldn't hold them, but recognizing that being in charge and having quote unquote, the right view or thinking that you do, uh, isn't, isn't gonna, isn't gonna fly. You know, I have, I guess a, a little bit of humility about, about me. Right. Um, Yeah, Back in, um, I forget which which presidential election, I guess it would have been 2004, uh, it was John Kerry was running against George W. Bush, and this was the first election that I had sort of paid attention to. And at the time, I was still a conservative, listened to people like Glenn Beck, Sean Hannity, and there was a big deal about John Kerry's uh, voting for a bill before voting against it. Mm -hmm. And the the whole flip-flop accusation came out, and I thought that was a little unfair. Uh, mostly because I was like, well, maybe he just changed his mind. You know, me a little bit naive here at that age. I mean, there's reasons people change their mind on things. I mean, there's there's people like Trump who becomes pro-life because it's politically advantageous for him to do so. And there's also people like, uh, I think I think Romney changed his views while governor. How do you, I mean, what do you make of this shift that politicians often change their views over time. And I think we can afford everybody the opportunity to, to change their views. But, it, you know, your your account of Elizabeth Warren sort of reveals the fact that it's not always just this honest inquiry over truth and they change their mind.
1: Right. I mean, I think that's why Warren's case is so uh, instructive is that it's a very clear example. Uh, well, as clear as we're probably going to get on somebody who flips for those reasons. Mm-hmm. A couple of thoughts. I mean, one is from public choice economics. There's what's called the median voter model. And it makes the observation that is fairly obvious that you have to, you know, in a primary uh, system, for example, you know, the Democrats have to appeal to Democratic voters, and then they have to, in a general election, pivot and to some extent, and appeal to uh, a different distribution of voters. And so, you know, as I talked to my students about this, the inference here would be that some pivoting of some sort is inevitable. uh, Because, even taking the cynicism out of it, you're talking to different people. You're going to emphasize different things. Mm -hmm. You're going to talk about things slightly differently. All of us do that. So I think part of this is just, you can't get away from that. I even found when I ran for office, some of the same things. I mean, when you're talking to uh, a group about illegal immigration, they don't want to talk about social security, you know? And so you're, you're talking to them about the topics that they want to talk about. And I guess you could call someone a sellout for not talking about, you know, the three issues they usually talk about, but that's just not really the way it works. So then I guess that's on one end of the spectrum. And then you've got more substantial flip-flopping where people are posturing one way and really, you know, selling a very different bill of goods in in another context. And then you've got something like Elizabeth Warren on the uh, other end of it, where it's just this hardcore flip from one thing to another. And I don't mind an epiphany. I mean, you know, if she had explained why, or if there is an explanation, I mean, I'm fine with that. I mean, you know, you look at president Reagan, you know, explain some of the epiphanies that got him to understand why high tax rates were a horrible idea. I mean, there are moments like that where people are convinced and that's, that's wonderful. We should applaud uh, that sort of stuff. We, we hope that we're, you know, high information people and we're open to reason and on and on, but you, you certainly get the impression that there's not much of that in politics today.
0: You know, with, there's so much about public policy that is muddled and interwoven, and it it almost becomes impossible to make a policy proposal, or or even just from the standpoint of like you know libertarians talking about the state and talking about you know what we would change about the laws. Uh, I mean, we did an episode a few few episodes ago on this podcast about like, well, what what buttons would be pressed to to get rid of certain things and in what order? And like it's just all scrambled together to some extent. And so I I often find it very difficult to suggest certain policy proposals because then there's always, oh well, yeah, but what about this? And then what about that? And then you're gonna have this ramification. And like you can't get everything you want all at once. And so you have to unravel things if you're gonna kind of make proposals. How do you I mean, you were assessing her journey, if you will, or flip flop, or whatever we want to call it. How do you how do you look at policy proposals as a Christian and say this is how we should reform this, or, or for that matter, abolish it? Because it just seems like you're getting you can create problems by just removing a law that are sometimes worse than what's happening, basically worse than the status quo. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think the first thing to say is that. It's fairly recent that it's it's even tough to talk policy at all anymore. You know, I think my students are amazed when they hear about the 1990s and Clinton with a Republican Congress doing welfare reform or the 1980s with Reagan and a Democratic Congress passing, you know, tremendous tax reforms and dramatically lowering marginal tax rates. Um, I mean, A, the bipartisanship that goes with that is is staggering to to imagine. And then really just the idea that we're talking about policy in serious terms. So a lot of that's faded. If you look at those who are elected today on both sides of the aisle, most of it seems to be just to strive for for power. It doesn't seem like they have any policy ideas or have not found it useful to talk about them. So I think one of the first things, the first thing to say is that we're in an environment where talking about policy is not all that attractive and not really done all that often. So I think whenever we can move the discourse from politics to policy, I think that's an important move for the good of the nation. I think as a Christian, you know, politics is equivalent to uh, what Paul talks about with Timothy, where you're talking about godless myths and basically noise. And I think a lot of times we get trapped talking about the latest noise when the things of greater value are policy uh, discussions. And so if we can move the discussion of policy, I think that's helpful. I think a second thing is to get people to th- be really clear or as clear as they can be on the difference between the theory and the practice of government. Uh, and so, you know, uh, when we were talking about Elizabeth Warren and, you know, if she were queen for a day, it's kind of the way she imagines that or, or if Doug Stewart was king for a day or a year, you know, would that change anything? And the fact is, you know, whether we're talking about draining the swamp or whatever metaphor you want, you know, a single person doesn't change very much. Uh, And so it's naive to imagine that Elizabeth Warren or Trump or anyone else, I mean, they can move the needle, but you know, they're, they're certainly not going to uh, they're not dictators, which is, uh, you know, generally a wonderful thing. And I think the other thing we can get, we can do is as we're getting people to talk about policy, we can, we can ask questions. You look at the ministry of Jesus and, he asked a lot of questions and that, uh, you know, he tells stories, asked questions. He certainly made statements. You know, he would, he would tell the woman, uh, you know, I'm going to, everyone should throw down their rocks and John eight, but go and send no more. So he was not uh, a compromiser with respect to righteousness and morality, but he was also not chucking rocks at people. So, you know, the, you look at the ministry of Jesus, it's very engaging. He tells a lot of stories and he asks a lot of questions by my count. There are 301 questions in the Gospels. And I think we can learn from that in the classroom or as we're dealing with people and just trying to ask questions more than we make. We make a lot of statements, but we're, we might be better off to ask more questions. And so on on policy things, maybe we ask things like, why would we want the federal government to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, And so you're dealing with someone who's a fan of government. You're not going to talk them off that uh, anytime soon. So maybe the the most provocative thing you can ask is, uh, about the level of government, right? Or maybe it's a government continues to do something, but maybe the private sector could have a larger piece of that. So maybe someone's a fan of government schools, but you say, well, maybe the buses could be run by the private sector. Maybe food services could be run by the private sector. Uh, just asking questions, provoking people with questions to consider, you know, views that are dogmatic, I guess. I mean, they're not deeply held. And and so I think we, we undervalue the role of questions and getting people to think about policy matters. Yeah. I think it's a really good, really good approach
0: to helping people understand a a new way of thinking because it, it also offers respect for, for what they, what they want to answer. Right. You know, the candidates could talk about how they're going to effect change. And if they explain to the American people In ways that are, you know, more—I don't even know what the word is. It's like here's the procedural aspects of things, and they're going to bore everybody. And so, what they have to say are things like, "Well, I'm just going to provide free this, free that. We're going to tax the wealthy. We're going to do all these things that are kind of more like ideological divides, and sort of things that are like passionate pleas for justice from like this sort of instinct of you know things are wrong, and I'm going to right them. And this particular thing is wrong, and I'm going to you know." put this to rights and maybe that's why the American people are are hearing one thing from politicians like hey we're gonna we're gonna make sure that the wealthy pay for universal health care or whatever it is and they don't actually map out a plan I mean Elizabeth Warren herself her her numbers went out of the pool as soon she mapped out a plan for paying for universal right. health care for medi- Medicare for all right and it's like once once people know the details they're either bored or uninterested or they don't like it they're like yeah sorry can't do that because in theory, Medicare for all is very popular, at least among the Democratic uh, audience.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think the key is, is not the talking about uh, policy per se. Uh, I think it's that when you talk about the benefits without the costs, it always seems attractive. So there's been some there's been polling results for a long time on that, where if you talk about the benefits of policy X, you know, people tend to be a fan of it. Uh, if you talk about the benefits and costs, they're not so much of a fan of it. So to me, Warren's troubles there, uh, and and similar problems for anyone proposing government activism, is that if you once you get into the cost side, which they're not going to want to talk about, but once that comes up, inevitably it's just not going to be as attractive. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about
0: your book, which is turn neither to the right nor to the left, which is like the perfect Christian libertarian title, by the way, um, (laughs) at least for Americans. I mean, uh, or any, anybody where politics is divided mentally between the left and the right. Uh, however that fits in your country. But I remember reading them. I actually have, I I can visualize where I was when I was reading your book. My, it was the guest room of my in-laws when my wife and I were just newly married and I was in seminary and I found this book in our library and I actually remember this is funny. It was kind of like too much information. That's sort of irrelevant, but I remember there being a, a, a thicker like laminate over the cover of the book. And it was like really hard for me to like comfortably hold it. Hey. Now I'm, I'm holding a newer copy in my hand and it actually is really nice. And I encourage anybody listening to go and buy this book. Uh, but it was the first book that introduced libertarianism from a viable Christian vantage point. I had read Bob Murphy, who's Christian. Uh, I had read Bob Murphy, uh politically incorrect guide to capitalism. I had read Milton Friedman's uh, free to choose, but I hadn't heard anything from a libertarian Christian perspective and libertarian Christian Institute didn't exist. And libertarianchristians.com, I don't think yet existed because I'm pretty sure this is, yep, it would not have existed now that I'm thinking about the years I went to Seminary, So, I didn't have a specifically Christian libertarian thing. I mean, there were a few articles here on Lou Rockwell and, and stuff like that. So you have, and this is, what, 2003 you wrote this? Uh, it was published, I believe. So this yes. is like, this is this is ancient in internet, in internet standards. So I, I think one of the things that we often get at the Libertarian Christian Institute when we are uh, discussing, proposing articles, we have a lot of people who are, I, I would say they lean conservative and they will inevitably make these comments that have to do with God's moral standards are clear. And, and you kind of pose this question in your book. Well, when God's moral standards are clear, you know, presumably from the Bible, should Christians actively pursue a legislative agenda or promote or enforce those standards? Now, obviously, we could talk about this for hours. You've written a 300-page book on this. Um, but I just want to get, where do you go with that? When when you talk with other Christians
1: who are like, but how could, you, how could you not advocate for God's moral standards? Yeah, It actually broadens out a bit to that both the left and the right have this basic confusion that if God says we should do it, it follows that we should enshrine that in law. So if you think about, let's go to the left for a minute, then we'll come back to the right. But if you think about the left, I mean, that's the reason they, you know, believe in minimum wages and welfare policy and, Healthcare. I mean, some or much of that is driven by, if not a Christian concern, a religious concern, or religious-like concern, that we ought to take care of people. And then they take the jump to, therefore, policy, therefore, government. Uh, in terms of the righteousness, you know, morality sorts of questions, uh, same thing happens on the right. It's, 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 the first thing is for people to recognize, hey, there's two questions here, right? It, there's the, is it right or wrong? And then there's the second question of, does, do you bring the government in? So again, I like to ask questions uh, that that make the case that it should be an open question for people. I mean, uh, my a couple of my favorites are, you know, we would all agree that gluttony is not a good idea. You know, let's, eating a second piece of pie is probably not good for me. If you're a Christian, you would believe that uh, certain religions uh, are wrong, right? And, and sinful and uh, distorted and cults or whatever. And, but would you work to pass laws against eating too much pie or being a devotee of some false religion? And the answer almost always, (laughs) uh, is no, we, we, of course we don't pursue laws for that. And I go, well, but that's, those are wrong. Why wouldn't we pursue laws? And, and that gets them to, to hesitate and say, oh, okay, well, yeah, I guess we don't want everything enshrined in law. So then it, Begs the next question, which is, okay, which things do we enshrine at law? And that's what I try to wrestle with in the book. And the clearest case to make there is what I call justice issues, where uh, people are doing direct and significant harm to other people. It's a matter of justice or injustice. And there you can imagine most easily, uh, ethically, biblically, a practical uh, role for government as a means to that end.
0: Hey, folks, I just want to take a break from our episode to ask you to consider becoming an LCI Insider. We want everyone to feel engaged and excited about what LCI is doing. And the best way to do that is if you become a monthly supporter at $20 or more per month, you will become what we're calling our LCI Insiders. You get some free gifts. You get an exclusive Crisis King magnetic lapel pin. They give you two copies of Faith Seeking Freedom. We send monthly eBooks months ahead of when they're released on our public website. You can get discounts on our swag on our online store, and you get exclusive invites to our quarterly live streams with the LCI staff. In addition to that, whenever we do publish something like a physical book like Strangers with Candy, we'll also send you those as well. So, the best way to stay up to date on what we're doing and to support what the Libertarian Christian Institute is doing, including supporting the podcast you're listening to right now, is to become an LCI insider. So, to do that, go to slash donate and then choose recurring monthly gift, and you'll be added to our list automatically. Thank you for your support, and I'll let you get back to the podcast. A lot of people have a hard time separating allowing or advocating that you legalize or decriminalize something and condoning it they kind of think of it the same as condoning it. i mean i think a libertarian is libertarians per se are not they don't quite have this reputation as much anymore about like oh well, you just want to legalize weed because you want to smoke pot and not get in trouble um that that kind of used to be the the stereotype to to people like that but why is it so hard to comprehend i ne- i was even a conservative. All my life, growing up, and it never, it never crossed my mind that something had to be illegal if it was wrong, or if, if for some reason it was legal, that meant that it was moral. Like I never had that problem, and yet many, many of my conservative friends are like, oh, but if we, we do that, that's sort of like condoning it.
1: Yeah. Well, let me, let me back up again a half a step oh, and sure. broaden things out. As a, as a public choice economist, we start with the premise that voters are what we call rationally ignorant and apathetic. And, uh, you know, if we just left it at ignorant and apathetic, you'd think we were horribly (laughs) insulting people, but then we do throw the word rational in front of it, that it's rational to be in that state. And the point of this is that, look, all I have to, 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 to devote to the political process is a vote, maybe a hundred bucks. I'm going to throw at a candidate, uh, maybe a talk at the water cooler with my colleagues. I mean, I, I really, there's not much incentive for me to get knowledgeable. There's very little incentive for me to put together a coherent political philosophy and a set of uh, consistent public policy preferences. So I think that's the starting premise is that you start with, look, people just don't think very much about this stuff. And they end up with a dog's breakfast of beliefs about things. And there's a lot of unstated assumptions. And, you know, my mom said this and my granddad said this and I read this book and Ben Shapiro sounds pretty sharp and, you know, I can't stand this, you know, whatever. And, and that's kind of how people cobble together their beliefs. And so, you know, I think that goes back to the role of questions. You have to ask a few questions to get people to just think a little bit harder about things. They just, they're really unexamined, I think, um, assumptions. And that's one of the big ones is just what, what, what is the role between law and condoning something or condemning it and there is a there is some relationship there so i think it's like a venn diagram right there is some overlap but it's not those two circles are not right on top of each other in the venn diagram there is a relationship but we would never you know imagine that um you know back to the false religion example i mean just because we allow muslims to uh worship doesn't mean we condone their religious beliefs or practices. It it doesn't mean that Uh, just because we allow people to get a big gulp at, at the local gas station doesn't mean we think that's good for you. So, you know, we all know that there's this, there is some relationship there, but it's not, it's far from a tight relationship.
0: Yeah. You mentioned legislating justice. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Because I think in our current milieu, social justice is the term that sort of gets shoved into here's why we need to legislate certain things broadly. I'll just let you respond to, to the question.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, in the book, I, I draw a distinction between justice and morality. So, uh, and obviously there's an overlap and I, and I spend quite a bit of time in the book trying to tease out the distinctions uh, for purposes of you know, trying to move the, the ball down the field on these questions. But in a nutshell, justice concerns are ones where direct and significant harm is done to others. So we would look at classic sins or crimes like rape, murder, theft, those sorts of things. And so there's a clear injustice being done from party A to party B. And so you could easily imagine a role for government stepping in and, and preventing and punishing those sorts of injustices. A lot of times the left is using the term justice uh, in, a, in a squishier manner, right? They're, they're looking at outcomes and saying, well, you know, the income is uh, not equal enough. Therefore, there's some kind of social injustice and blah, blah, blah. That, that's troubling for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's just not well-defined, neither the cause of the concern nor the pers- perspective uh, policy responses to that. So, I mean, I think you start with clear examples of justice, cronyism, bribery, you know, interest groups that take money from X to give to Y, uh, those sorts of things would would be really clear examples of injustice, uh, a lot clearer than some of the stuff that gets uh, trotted out today with that term. Yeah. You
0: know, I would argue if I were kind of playing devil's advocate on the behalf of social justice warriors at least the intelligent ones that I know into what you just said I think I would say things like yeah we, we've thought about outcomes for a long time but what we're now focusing on is the situation in which th- that produces those outcomes so for instance the situation where the tax code benefits the wealthy and leaves you know the poor, without any assistance or tax benefits, basically, you know, wealth, the welfare state for Wall Street. But now we have, I mean, currently this week in early December 2019, Trump is pulling support of like $700,000 or no, I know what it was, it was like 700,000 more people are now not going to have food stamps or something along those lines. I just have seen the, the articles the last day or so. And they're saying, well, you know, they were able to give out, you know, trillions of dollars of whatever in tax subsidies to this. And so the situation is what is unjust, not necessarily the outcomes per se. And that's kind of their approach now is that we've got, you know, the wealthy keep getting wealthier kind of of thing. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, I think this is uh, when I deal with people like that, I shift gears a little bit and say, you know, look, I agree with you. I'm a libertarian. I find a lot of this government intervention and cronyism deeply troubling. And I, and I just wonder why, you know, I kind of, I'll half joke, you know, I understand why Republicans would be okay with that, but I really don't understand why it's bipartisan. I don't understand why Democrats who would claim to be champions of the working poor middle class would be participating in those sorts of things Why they'd be so fond of crony capitalism. Uh, so I think that's one thing to say. Uh, a second thing to say is, you know, no one talks about FICA uh, and it's, um, uh, that's the payroll taxes on income. It's 15.3% of every dollar that's earned. And so all the discussion, Republican and Democrat, is about income taxes of the April 15th variety. And no one talks about FICO, which imposes a larger burden on 80% of wage earners and everyone in the working poor middle class. So if you uh, look at a 15% tax on every dollar earned by the working poor middle class, that topic has got to come up if you're concerned with social justice. And again, you know, to me, that's evidence number one, that the Democrats really don't care about the working poor middle class, because if they did, they would talk about uh, FICA taxes. They would talk about social security uh, and the 0% rate of return it gives. And so I think, you know, we, we know the Democrats are frauds on that. And so I guess to me, that's the angle to pursue with, people that are legitimate social justice warriors have legitimate concerns and are really playing with this is to say, you know, you don't have any allies in this fight, except maybe libertarians because the two major parties are perfectly happy with chronic capitalism. The two major parties are perfectly happy to pound the working poor with FICA taxes. And what can we do to get the government from harming people so much? What, what can we do now? Yeah.
0: So on the, on the non-political side of things, if you're a Christian and you're concerned about personal morality, I uh, will jump back to that side of the fence for a second. What can be done instead? Uh, There's a question that you address in the book. It's like, well, what should we do instead? Because clearly we don't want people strung out on drugs. We don't want people imbibing too much sugar uh, that damages their health and their whatever. Like, we don't want that to happen if we, if we have any sort of goodwill toward other people. What should we do instead if we can't tell the local mayor to, you know, raise sugar taxes to three times the cost of the soda?
1: Yeah, I think one of the, you know, the first thing you, one of the first things you talk about in economics is opportunity costs. And I think one of the potentially most provocative things I say in the book is that, you know, even if I haven't been persuasive about the perils ethically and practically of bringing the government in, there's still this question of the good versus the best. And even if you think bringing the government in is a good pursuit, you still have to answer, is it the best pursuit, right? So we're called to be stewards of the resources we have, and good stewardship is not better than better stewardship. And we've got to really wrestle with that. And so one area where the church really falls apart here, I think, is not following the ministry practices of Jesus. If you look at how Jesus devoted his life, his earthly ministry, it was to making disciples and disciple makers. And that wasn't simply people that were behaving themselves and not sleeping around with their wives and taking out their trash and standing out of trouble until they could get whisked off to heaven. The plan was to make disciples who could make disciples who could make disciples. And, um, too often churches just have, you know, very little vision or stomach or plan to do that sort of thing. So I I guess, I would start with the ministry of Jesus and say, look, if you're not yourself a fervent disciple of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, if you're not a disciple maker, if your church is not focusing on that, then you've got your priorities messed up. Uh, Jesus came here to spend the bulk of his time with 12 people, poured his life into those, and that, along with the Holy Spirit, is the reason the church exists today. And so we, we get excited about working with crowds, we, we work with individuals, that's all fine, but really disciple-making has to be the priority of the church. And so if you're putting politics over that, you clearly don't have the, the priorities of Jesus. Can you do both? Oh, sure. But if you're not doing discipleship, you, you, know, you better be doing that. So yeah, I think there's a place for politics, uh, absolutely. I mean, I certainly do quite a bit of that myself, but I think... You know, it it is in humility, back to the point you were making earlier, that we uh, imagine we know more than we do, and we probably cause trouble even with the best of intentions. And we we confuse, uh, you know, political parties with policy or, you know, uh, we we stumble into idolatry towards government or parties, uh, which the scriptures also warn against. Uh, So, yeah, there's a place for politics. There's a a place for policy, certainly. Uh, But if you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you're not, you know, if your church is not promoting that in an effective way, then clearly the priorities are not where they need to be. How do you advise somebody who believes that
0: certain things around the state are unjust? So, for instance, uh, you know, libertarians will say, you know, taxation is theft and my property taxes are being forced from me. So I will not send my kids to public school. Uh, because I believe that's participation in, you know, taking other people's tax dollars or something like that. Some people will take those stances. I don't, you know, I don't personally take that stance. I, I often wonder how pure you can really be and how important that purity is to, to our conscience. What, what are your thoughts on, on those sort of, um, dilemmas that pers- persons will find themselves in?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, first of all, we have to give, you know, freedom for differences in conscience, to me, there's a big difference between, I don't know, passively is quite the right word, but participating in a system that's been set up versus actively advocating for that. So, as a personal example, right, I work for a state university, so I'm in a bit of a, a potential quandary there. But I guess, uh, I guess the uh, the thing that lets me sleep at night is I'm never advocating for, uh, subsidies for higher ed. In fact, I've written against. Uh, subsidies for higher ed on many, many occasions on equity and efficiency grounds. So, you know, I'm going to drive on the government roads. I'm going to take Social Security when you know I paid into it all these years. Uh, but you're not going to hear me advocating for those things. So to me, that's where the clear difference is, um, that it's OK to accept those things. It's OK not to as well if it's a matter of conscience for you. But uh, to me, the, the clear distinction is not advocating for that. So your your book, Turn
0: Neither to the Right Nor to the Left, I strongly recommend to all of our listeners. Are you working on any, other than the Elizabeth Warren Project, uh, that whole story that we talked about earlier, where can our listeners find more
1: of what you do? Do you blog, or do you have a site? Yeah, I have uh, Sean's blog, so it's S-C-H-A-N-S-B-L-O-G, a a little play on the name there. Uh, You know, We've talked about disciple-making quite a bit. That's a a huge passion for me. I've, I've, uh, run a ministry for the last 17 years with a ministry partner called Thoroughly Equipped. Uh, we'd have discipleship curriculum and and books to help people and churches uh, with implementing that. And I just finished a uh, Bible reading plan called the Word Diet and getting ready to foist uh, that on some guinea pigs who will help me work out the wrinkles. But uh, at least in our churches, we we seem to tell people to read the Bible a lot and encourage it, but we don't really give them much help with that. And if we're in a post-Christian culture, then it's going to be increasingly biblically illiterate. People are distracted by their phones. We need to do more than exhort them from the pulpit. We need to you know, have a plan, a workable plan for people to read the Bible. So that that project is basically read a chapter a day for a year to get the arc of the scriptures through reading about 300 chapters. So really excited about that project so yeah i care about politics and public policy but uh, you know i think my priorities are straight as well it's just important that we disciple those around us we we love on our families and our neighbors our colleagues and make a difference in the world uh, where god has put us well
0: i am definitely benefiting from your work and i i wish you well on the discipleship thing i think it's a really important goal to maintain i mean I know that my church that I currently go to, uh, discipleship is sort of the, I don't want to call it a buzzword because that de-emphasizes the importance of it, but that's a very important aspect to the worship and atmosphere in our church is that we want to make disciples. So I, I think that is a good, it's a good guideline. Um, it's not even a right word either, but anyway, discipleship is super important and I think it actually helps us when we, when we think about discipleship, is how we influence people. It's a way to influence people in, in the right direction when we think about political
1: influence. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, we've also uh, written a couple of books to that end. You know, church leaders, their angle on it is that they don't have enough qualified lay people to help them do ministry. So the book we wrote for them is called Enough Horses in the Barn and uh, playing with the metaphor of, you know, do you have enough horsepower in your church? And then for lay people, uh, we've got a much smaller book, but it's called um, Roll Up Your Sleeves. So for people who need to roll up their sleeves, that's our, our uh, effort to try and get their attention and get in the, you know, God wants great things from us and for us. And uh, that that's not just sitting in a pew. It's not just handing out bulletins and being nice to people. God has much greater things in store for us and wants those things from us. And so we, we need to get equipped and we need to make ourselves available for the, uh, the great things God has in store for us. Excellent. Well, I will post links to those things on the
0: show notes page. Eric, thanks for joining us for this episode. Glad to do it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you like today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group. You are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Katherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.
0: Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise, it reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. And evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com. You click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50 and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished.